The work of our next guest has spanned 40 years and has helped save lives. For that work at the NIH, he's a finalist for the Paul Volcker Career Achievement Award from the Partnership for Public Service. Federal News Network's Eric White spoke with the chief of the Statistical Research and Applications Branch at the National Cancer Institute, Dr. Rocky Foyer. So I founded and I currently lead a consortium of simulation modelers. I'll explain what that is. Actually, for the last 23 years, we have over 200 investigators at at over 30 academic institutions, and it's called the Cancer Intervention and Surveillance Modeling Network, or CISNET for short. And it has really fundamentally changed how U.S. cancer screening guidelines are developed. So we've helped to support the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force. That's an independent panel of experts in evidence-based medicine sponsored by ARC to set and revise uh, screening recommendations for lung, breast, colorectal, and prostate cancer. So, for example, we helped support the task force in a recent draft recommendation to start breast cancer screening at age 40 instead of 50, and a final recommendation for colorectal cancer screening to start at age 45 instead of 50. And so you have the task force and CISNET to think of, thank if your doctor tells you to get a colonoscopy five years earlier than you would have otherwise, and it is really a good thing. Before CISNET, screening recommendations were based on what was called evidence reviews. These are systematic reviews of all known studies. But direct evidence from studies wouldn't be sufficient to distinguish all the relative benefits and harms of a very large number of possible screening regimens. That's age to start screening, age to stop screening, how often you should be screened. And that sometimes comes to hundreds of different combinations. You couldn't do studies on all those combinations. So population decision modeling, we simulate millions of people's individual lives. We simulate the year they were born and what risk factors they were exposed to. For example, men born in the 1920s, many of whom fought in World War II when they handed out cigarettes to the GIs, had the highest smoking rates of any generation of Americans. So they had higher lung cancer screening rates. And then if and at what age did a cancer start to develop in somebody's body, when the cancer would have caused symptoms, Uh, when the cancer would have caused symptoms and been diagnosed in the absence of screening, what type of treatment they would get, and what age they would die of either their cancer or some other cause. And then over this, we superimpose many different screening schedules on their lives to see how things might have turned out differently. These are kind of called counterfactual situations. What if your life, what if you didn't have screening? What if you had screening that started at 40? What if 50? What if you had it every year? What if you had it every other year? And then we accumulate all these results and determine the set of screening schedules that produce the most benefit in terms of lowering death rates and the fewest harms, for example, false positive screening results per number of screens conducted. So when I started this consortium, I knew that simulation models could potentially be very valuable in this area, but they really had a serious credibility issue in some circles. Independently developed simulation models taking on the same problem often resulted in radically different results that were just very difficult to reconcile because there were so many complex and subtle differences between the models. So people felt, okay, you get whatever result you want. And this greatly hurt the credibility of these models. So in CISNET, we took a different approach. It's a collaborative group of modelers for each cancer site, multiple with multiple independent models for each cancer site. But then they work together and tackle the same problems 
in a very systematic way. They share common inputs and produce a common set of outputs, and they get to understand each other's models. So when the results are similar, it brings real credibility to the results, and when they differ, the reasons for these differences can be systematically evaluated. So this approach greatly improved the credibility of this type of modeling, and it's not only become a critical tool in developing new screening guidelines, but they're also used in other ways, for example, to understand the contribution of past advances in prevention, screening, and treatment to national cancer trends. And to project cancer rates into the future as a function of the uptake of some of the newest advances. And then importantly, studying the sources of health disparities in cancer rates and what might be done to reduce them. So this consortium has really yeah, changed the game a little bit in terms of screening guidelines and other ways to evaluate uh, at the population level what's occurring and why it's occurring and to project into the future. So using this technique of modeling, I'm just curious on w- what went into the models themselves. Was it data that you all gathered from certain cancer sites or numerous amounts of cancer sites, and then you were able to replicate the results, and that's what you're saying added to the credibility because it was showing that, okay, yes, if we do X, then Y happens every time sort of deal? Yes. Well, first of all, if the models got the same answers, you know, that, then we feel that way. But we use every possible data source, population-based cancer registry, and I could talk a little bit more about that, is the backbone of the research. But we use, we use national surveys of screening rates and, smoke, and to, uh, smoking rates. We have something called a smoking history generator. We use national surveys from 1965 to the present to reproduce by birth cohort smoking histories of individuals when they started, when they stopped, how many cigarettes they, and that's an input into the models. We use screening studies because they kind of what's called dip into the preclinical cancer, and uh, we could see how fast and cancers are growing before they become symptomatic and how many people. We also use autopsy studies. There's a number of studies where people die of other causes, and then they might like biopsy their colon very closely and see how many of these people have polyps, so precancerous lesions, how many have colorectal cancer. That's been done for prostate cancer and other cancers. So we use every possible data source. And then we, we, yeah, we calibrate, what's called calibrate the models based on that. And then in the end run, maybe there's a new trial that occurs and we use the models to see if we could predict what the trial showed or if we could predict national trends and rates and then we could decompose those rates so we we look on and on and on for for you know different all the different data sources and what the models do is sort of synthesize all the data and then the comparative modeling because people could take different approaches and get different you know different results but when they come together or if they don't come together because we're working together closely we could understand the differences between the models Gotcha. Okay. And those discoveries that you talked about, you know, lowering the uh, recommendations for screenings of colon cancer, things of that nature. Have there been any population-based discoveries that you all have made through these modeling systems? So, yes. For Just for example, in lung cancer screening, we use a criteria for if you're eligible for lung cancer screening. We don't screen everybody. We want to sm- screen mostly fairly heavy smokers because uh, because and we use a criteria called pack years how many years did you smoke times how many packs a day you smoked and 
African-American individuals tend to have similar pack years to white individuals, but they tend to start a little bit later in life. They, they don't initiate at the same time, and their cessation is usually a little bit older. So they might have the same pack years, but it's shifted to an older age. And we know from different studies that if you accumulate those pack years at a little bit at an older age, even though you have the same pack years as somebody else, you have a higher risk of lung cancer. And the lung cancer screening recommendations didn't take that into account. So it created a health disparity. So what the the new round of lung cancer screening recommendations, they lowered the threshold for being eligible for lung cancer screening to fewer pack years to accommodate you know, in general more people, but, but especially African-American individuals who might have the same pack years as somebody else but have a higher risk because they accumulated those pack years at a higher age. So that's an example of very, just very careful study of the population-based data and then how it translates into something like screening recommendations. You all factored in advancements in treatments and screening procedures. I'm wondering what you think of advancements in in screening technologies or the data accumulation technologies. Do you f- foresee a future where you're having even more factors coming in that you're able to make the model even more predictive and more accurate? Well, yeah, let me let me just talk a little bit about our population-based cancer registries and how that data has radically improved over time. So cancer registries, that part of the program I work on collates the population-based cancer registry. Cancer registries collect data on every cancer that occurred in a defined geographic region. It's usually a state and really form the backbone of population-based cancer statistics. And when I first started at the National Cancer Institute in 1987, our registries covered only about 10% of the U.S. population. And today, the National Cancer Institute and the Centers for Disease Control collectively have registries covering the entire U.S. population. Dr. Eric Rocky Foyer, the chief of the Statistical Research and Applications Branch at the National Cancer Institute, speaking with Federal News Network's Eric White. We'll post this interview along with interviews with all of our Service to America finalists at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to The Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected. 
and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, 
This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role 
with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how how are things going? Um, Because we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You You have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're Thank you. uh, Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, 
your passion is infectious. Okay. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.